This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, August 31st, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. Is the Constitution, as Elon Werman argues in his new book, A Debt Against the Living? His introduction to constitutional originalism makes the case that the Constitution is just such a debt. We spoke in July. Where do we find the genesis of these kinds of arguments about the Constitution? I note uh, that that you note a couple of particular quotations from Jefferson and Madison as being uh, particularly important. Where is where do we find the the nut of the argument about the Constitution and what it what it requires, what it confers? Well, since you bring up uh, Jefferson and Madison, I always love talking about where the title of the book comes from. And then I guess that'll tie into originalism. So Thomas Jefferson wrote this rather famous letter to James Madison in 1789, in which Jefferson says that the earth belongs to the living. The earth belongs to the living and not to the dead. The dead have neither power nor rights over it. So this letter is often quoted today for the proposition that we should not be bound by the dead hand of the past, by the dead hand of the Constitution. But what's less known is Madison's reply in which he said, he wrote to Jefferson the following, if the earth be the gift of nature to the living, then their title can extend to the earth in its natural state only. The improvements made by the dead, Madison said, form a debt against the living who take the benefit of them. This debt could not be otherwise discharged than by a proportionate obedience to the will of the authors of the improvement. In other words, yes, Jefferson's right. The earth does belong to the living, but only in its natural state. The Constitution, however, is an improvement of such significance upon the natural condition of the world that it can't but create a debt against future generations. And Madison says, the only way for those generations, for we the living, to faithfully discharge that debt is a kind of originalism by a proportionate obedience to the will of the authors of the improvement, he says. So who's right, Thomas Jefferson or James Madison? And in my book, I answer by choice of title, I think you could guess, in favor of Madison, originalism, and the original constitution. So the argument from originalism, for originalism, I think is this. Originalism first and foremost stands for the proposition that what the law is, is distinct from what the law ought to be. This, in fact, is how we assess the continuing validity of all laws, right? Whether it's the Alien Tort Statute passed in 1789 or the Defense of Marriage Act enacted in 1996, we first ask, what does the law actually say? What does it do? What legal effect does it have? What does it accomplish in the world? And only then do we ask whether what it says what it means or what it does is good. So originalism, first and foremost, stands for the proposition that we should apply this framework for looking at all law to the Constitution itself. We first ask, what does the Constitution say? What does it mean? What does it do? And only then do we ask whether what it says is good, whether it creates a debt against the living generation. So how does the originalist tackle that first question? What does the Constitution say? What does it mean? What does it do? Well, the originalist says 
that you interpret the words of the Constitution the same way you'd interpret the words of any communication intended as a public instruction. So suppose you find a recipe for fried chicken in your attic and it's dated 1789. Gary Lawson drew this analogy actually uh, in a very entertaining Law Review article between uh, uh, reading recipes and reading constitutions. So the originalist says there's no difference. How do you interpret the words of a recipe? How do you figure out what culinary effect, so to speak, it has in the world? You look to the meaning that the words had to uh, the people at the time. So for the Constitution, you look to the original meaning the words had to the framers who wrote the Constitution and the public that ratified it. Where are we failing with respect to uh, originalism in terms of interpretation? One idea that comes to mind is surveillance, government surveillance of American citizens. Well, in the sense of what originalism would remedy or I guess where we're failing in our modern constitutional interpretation, right? I think it's the non-originalist interpretations that are failing in many respects, right? If you believe- Well, of course you would. Well, yeah, of course. Um, but in this, I don't think- So with respect, with specific respect to surveillance of Americans, is there an originalist defense to be made for that? Well, so the first thing to say is that, of course, the Fourth Amendment applies to modern technology, right? This is often a, a trope that's made against originalism. Well, the founders couldn't conceive of the internet, right? Or they couldn't conceive of GPS devices. Well, yeah, and Yet we had founders who wrote in cipher to each other. Yes, that's also very true. And so the point then is there's a distinction between the original expected application of the law, right, and the original meaning of the law. The founders wrote, and that was the genius of the Constitution, they wrote standards like unreasonable searches and seizures that can apply to future circumstances. So, for example, of course, the First Amendment applies to the internet. Of course, the Fourth Amendment uh, applies um, uh, to GPS devices put on cars, even though the, the founders could think of none of these things. What matters is what they wrote. And what they wrote were standards that could be applied uh, and subsequently updated to new facts and new conditions about the world. And so the Fourth Amendment does apply to surveillance. And the problem, uh, of course, uh, with the surveillance cases, and I am not a, a Fourth Amendment expert, but there is a line of cases that says if you give over information, even a telephone call, right, and that information goes to a third party, uh, like a telecommunications company, that you uh, have uh, 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 given up your right to privacy uh, to that information. And the court may be reconsidering that um, uh, soon, but originalism doesn't fail with respect uh, uh, to surveillance, at least insofar as the same principles that the founders wrote could and should apply. Uh, however, uh, the court ends up uh, deciding the question, uh, it's not a situation in which originalism necessarily won't have an answer because the founders couldn't conceive of this. Well, now I didn't. Ask, I didn't. Wasn't asking whether or not originalism is failing in the uh, in interpreting these kinds of things, but it seems to me that there is a clear meaning with respect to things like papers and effects, and that effects seems like the most important word when you're talking about how modern governments engage in surveillance. I think that's right. And uh, for what it's worth, uh, I think uh, that also applies in administrative investigations. Uh, often the government says you don't have a right to privacy um, in papers and effects or, 
uh, uh, when you're running a, a heavily regulated business or something like that. And of course, most Americans today um, uh, run or are parts of businesses where they would have papers and effects. And that's also a, a problem when you get a subpoena and you have to, for documents, the court says that that's not compelled testimony. Um, even though the Fifth Amendment protects you against, you know, uh, producing testimony against yourself. Um, so uh, there is a big problem uh, with the extent uh, and, and reach of government, I think, today. But I think originalism might have answers to those questions and in, and in many respects are deviations from originalism. Uh, for example, in administrative investigations and administrative searches are a cause of a lot of, um, of our ills. Well, what about war powers? Congress has done so much to uh, delegate, perhaps unconstitutionally so, uh, authorities to the executive branch. So this is a, a very uh, tough question, and Michael McConnell is actually working on a, a paper on this, uh, which um, or, or it might even become a book. I think it's getting to that length, but it's very interesting. In, in fact, that the prerogative powers of the king. Uh, back in Great Britain were actually divided up between uh, the executive branch and the Congress. And when you look at the enumeration of powers in Article 1, Section 8, actually uh, a significant chunk of them, maybe seven or eight of the powers, have to do with foreign affairs or traditionally prerogative executive powers. Uh, and uh, I don't want to do a disservice to, to Professor McConnell's thesis before his paper comes out, but his argument is actually that Congress has much more power uh, to delegate um, the war powers or the prerogative powers uh, to the executive because of the nature or character uh, of those powers. Uh, but – and in that sense, it's important to keep in mind, the court has never really uh, expounded on this. Uh, but the scope of the delegation or the scope of the power, the kind of power that Congress can exercise uh, often should affect how much it's permitted to delegate. You know, so for example, its appropriations power – it often can't delegate that much power, uh, but it's not clear that Congress shouldn't be able to delegate some more discretion uh, to the executive with, with the war powers. Is the non-delegation doctrine dead? So I don't think it has to be. And this also is a topic that's uh, a bit in my wheelhouse and I, and I also uh, have done some writing on this. Uh, the non-delegation doctrine uh, is dead in the sense that the courts, it's, it's so powerful that the courts refuse to enforce it. It's so powerful, and this is, seems counterintuitive, but it's so powerful because the way the non-delegation doctrine is, is framed today, it's that either, either a statutory provision violates the non-delegation doctrine or it doesn't. So when a court is confronted with a non-delegation challenge, the question is, are we striking out the central provision of the Clean Water Act or the Clean Air Act? And that's why courts are so loath to actually use the non-delegation doctrine. But I do think there are ways that maybe the court, uh, and in a paper that I'm working on, I actually call this as applied non-delegation, might be able to, to cabin the non-delegation doctrine, to look at every regulation alone as applied rather than the statute that the regulation is, is promulgated pursuant to, and ask if Congress gave the agency the authority to to make this regulation, would that be an unlawful delegation of legislative power? So to bring it back to your question, I do think the non-delegation doctrine is dead, but I th at least the way the courts 
have used it and applied it. But I think it can be revived. And in fact, I would encourage conservatives to think more creatively about the, the separation of powers and to, to find ways, like through an as-applied doctrine, to, to revive it. I notice in your book, you're, you don't argue at all, it seems, with uh, Lysander Spooner. Uh, I, I have no argument with Lysander Spooner. Uh, he was also a big <laughs> influence on uh, Randy Barnett's book, um, if I'm remembering co- correctly. Could you harmonize then the, the arguments that Lysander Spooner made in No Treason, which is essentially, you know, no living person uh, authored the Constitution and in the context of some of the wording in the Constitution itself, it doesn't actually bind uh, anyone to obey the edicts of a government that exists underneath it. So I have to confess that I'm not, I've not read Spooner's No Treason. But this is uh, in the same vein of Thomas Jefferson's uh, argument, and Madison disagreed with it in his reply. Madison said that the Constitution creates a debt against future generations. And in the book, I argue that he was right. That goes to the question of whether the Constitution is good and legitimate and just. And uh, the Lysander Spooner position and perhaps the Thomas Jefferson position can be stated as you need some sort of ongoing active consent of the governed, ongoing active uh, uh, acts of popular sovereignty. But I think Madison's view was a bit different and the view of many other founders. And that view was essentially this, that the Constitution, for it to be good and just and legitimate and, and create this debt against the living, had to do what a good constitution, or I should say what a free constitution had to do, which is balance the two principal competing ends of free government. So that first end is creating a regime of self-government. On the other hand, is protecting our natural liberties, our natural rights. And these are in tension with each other because it's often popular majorities that can infringe on the rights of others. And so balancing these, these competing uh, objectives, these, these competing ends of government is no small task and I argue is no easy task. And I argue in the book that the founders were remarkably successful at the way that they balanced uh, um, uh, these competing ends through rather ingenious mechanisms, mechanisms through separation of powers, uh, checks and balances, uh, the, uh, uh, um, the representative process, um, the division of federal and state powers, the enumeration of federal power, the, the protections of the Bill of Rights, which were considered the most essential rights necessary for a, for a free society, for a free government. And that alone, I think, uh, creates this debt against future generations. Having said that, having said that, that was not enough. The founders also said that for the Constitution to be worth more than the parchment on which it was written, it had to receive the approbation of the people. It had to be rooted in an act of popular sovereignty. Now, it is this ground that the Constitution is most criticized on, right? The founders excluded uh, – the, the founders were slave owners. They excluded uh, uh, women from the process. Many states excluded uh, the poor and the populist. But we must remember – we must remember that these things were not invented by the founders. These things were not their achievement. The, exclu- the Slavery had been universal. The, exclu- the exclusion of women had been universal. The exclusion of the poor and the populist had been universal. The founders' achievement was transcending these historical – traditions in very important ways, these historical limitations in important and profound ways. So their achievement was writing for the first time in a foundational national document that all men are created equal. As a result of which writing, by the way, over half the states between 1776 and 1787 abolished slavery or set a timetable for abolition. Their achievement was creating the first free government 
of the modern world, creating a regime of self-government also committed to the principle of equality under law. Remember, the Constitution has no property requirements for holding office. The Constitution abolished uh, hereditary privileges and titles of nobility. And the body of the people who voted, who deliberate and reflect on the ratification of the Constitution was broader than anywhere else in the world and at any time in history up until that time. So yes, I think we the living have progressed and maybe we could write a better constitution uh, uh, today if we tried. But I submit that we have progressed so much because we stand on the shoulders of giants. We stand on the shoulders of our founders. You make an originalist defense of Brown v. Board of Education. What does that, what does that look like and, and why is that a notable thing? Yeah, so Brown v. Board is very, very important, not just for our, our constitutional culture and our civic culture today, but for originalism specifically, because it's often said that originalism can't justify Brown v. Board and that that's a reason not to be originalist. So the first thing to say is, is again, to divide uh, those inquiries that I divided at the beginning. The, the first question for an originalist is, what does the Constitution actually say? What does it mean? What does it require? And if it doesn't require Brown v. Board, then maybe we have to uh, abandon the Constitution, or maybe that even justifies uh, non-originalist interpretations. Uh, but with that framework in mind, I do think originalism can and always could defend Brown v. Board in this way. And I'll invoke here the legendary law professor Charles Black, um, who in 1960 said in a law review article that the justification for the desegregation decisions was awkwardly simple. Once it was known in the 1950s what all you know, uh, the Southerners knew that the purpose of the segregation laws was the disadvantaging, the systematic disadvantaging of black Americans, keeping them in a condition of inferiority and subordination. When it was known that that was the actual purpose of these laws, then the desegregation decisions are easy. They are clearly contrary to the text and principle of the 14th Amendment, which says you can't, as a state, enact laws that abridge the, 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 the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States on account of things like race. You can't deny them equal protection of the laws. So I sort of subscribe to the Charles Black School where it doesn't matter what uh, the people of this country, you know, if you took a poll in 1868 or 1872 or 1875, uh, whether they wanted the 14th Amendment to apply to desegregation or thought it would. What matters is what they wrote. And once it was known what these, desegregation, what these segregation laws actually accomplished and what their intended purpose was, I think they become easy under the 14th Amendment. So what about laws that are uh, their public understanding of the purpose of the law changes over time? That is to say, we, you, a, a law is passed with one intent, but it becomes uh, known later that it also provides this other intent. Does that, in, in a case like Brown, does that change the analysis at all? So I, I don't think so. Uh, at least if if the original analysis had been you know properly done, I, I suppose we could discover other tools over time or other evidence that shapes our meaning, uh, that shapes our understanding of the meaning. But the meaning, I think, doesn't necessarily change. The evidence that we have for discerning that meaning might change. Uh, but intent, uh, remember what we're looking at is the original public meaning of the laws. The intent of the framers of any particular constitutional provision does matter 
And I think, in fact, it rarely diverges from, from, the, from the public meaning. It might sometimes. But it's evidence of what the words mean. After all, why did they use those words? They had particular purposes in mind. That, you know, and that's how you can also look to background principles of law. All of these things come together to sort of shape our understanding of, of the public meaning of the laws. I don't think um, you know, the, the public meaning changes. It could be that our knowledge of what these provisions in fact objectively mean changes. Uh, so, so that's one possibility. Um, and don't get me wrong, right? When I say that there's an objective public meaning, that doesn't mean there's no room for interpretation. It doesn't mean there won't be ambiguities or vagueness or indeterminacies. Right? So one of my favorite examples is a statute uh, that said it, shall, you know, it enhanced the penalty if a criminal defendant had used a gun in the commission of a crime. And this case, uh, whose name is escaping me right now, um, uh, the defendant traded his gun for drugs to receive drugs. He didn't brandish it. He didn't threaten anyone with it. He traded it for guns. Well, does that f fall under the public meaning of using a gun? I don't, I don't know. Uh, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Um, there's textual arguments on both sides. And so public meaning, that there's an objective public meaning, doesn't mean that there won't be room for interpretation and debate and that we can learn more. It doesn't mean we can't learn more over time about what the public meaning might actually be. What is the most uh, clear-cut example, in your view, in this originalist view, of what uh, Anton and Scalia would have called constitutional but stupid? Constitutional but stupid. Um, well, does the income tax count? I mean, you know, I, I, I say that in jest, you know, I, I'm, I'm not completely anti-tax, you know, I, I, I consider myself, you know, somewhere in between libertarian and conservative uh, politically, uh, but there it is, you know, in black and white, the 16th Amendment permits uh, the federal income tax. Uh, the 17th Amendment permits the direct election of senators. There are good things to these provisions and also bad things. And, you know, on the whole, uh, do I think maybe we'd be better off without a federal income tax? Do I think we might be better off if senators weren't directly elected? Pro probably. You know, I, I think over time, especially if, if you believe in um, limiting federal power and maximizing individual liberty, then I think you know, those are constitutional but stupid. You know, how stupid, I, I won't stake out a position right now, but, but those would be um, some, some clear-cut examples. Eileen Werman is author of A Debt Against the Living, an introduction to originalism. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.